This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. I've got Jill here today, and it's lovely to have you here, Jill. Thank you, Louise. Nice to be here. Absolutely. You are somebody who has been around in the fellowship and recovery for a number of years, so it's going to be great to hear your story of recovery, but I'm also interested in what life was like for you before you came into recovery. Can you give us a bit of a taste of what Jill was like in those days? I was a, probably a pretty miserable child, and I was probably a fairly miserable adult before I came to the program. As a kid, I always felt different. I felt as though I didn't belong. I had a brother and a sister, and we all looked fairly similar, but I always felt as though I must have been adopted because I just didn't feel like everybody else. I always felt as though I stuck out, you know, I wanted to fade into the background and yet I always was sticking out and being a nuisance and being different and that was, you know, as a child I was like that and as an adult it was fairly much the same. I mean, I discovered various addictions and they covered up all that behaviour but I think growing up I wasn't the happiest of people. So then... Excessive self-focus, I mean, that sounds Mm. so uncomfortable. Mm. It was. A symptom of the disease? Yes, and I didn't realise that until I came to the programme. I mean, I came here because I wanted to be thin and I was sick of being obsessed with food, but I had no idea of how all those years of misery and self-centredness and unhappiness were actually part of the addiction you know part of the addictive personality and discovered that when I came here and met many people with very similar experiences it was great solace was Mm -hmm. is that quite important do you think Jill that sense of identification that here at last are people who understand absolutely I mean I always felt like such a freak felt as though there were rules to life that I didn't understand and ways to belong that I didn't understand. And from my first meeting, you know, discovering there were people who had been like me and more importantly weren't like that anymore, was it was a great comfort to know there was a solution. And that it wasn't all these lots of different problems. It was actually one problem called addiction. And that there were people who had found a solution to it. And all those behavioural things, all the, you know, all the misery and all the personality problems were all just part of that thing. It was wonderful. And, of course, until you knew that you were an addict, of course you would think you had a lot of separate problems. And what a relief. What a relief. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, yes. And so tell me about your eating. So, Jill, were you somebody who came into the fellowship massively overweight? Uh, what, what, what did your eating look like? I was... I described myself as stout at the time. <laughs> I was probably three or four stone overweight, and I thought that was part of my problem and discovered in the programme that it was just a mere symptom of my problem. But... I I binged. I was an absolute binge eater, and I'd 
I'd had these binges that would last for days and days and I was terrified of finishing them because I knew I was going to have the hangover at all, of all time at the end of a binge. I'd sort of avoid it for as long as possible and then it would have to stop and I would be sick for several days. And then I'd start up again. It was always the first one. I'd start up again and I'd, and I'd find myself on this merry-go-round and I'd think, how could you have forgotten how could you not have remembered how this would end up? But that's how it was. And you share about, you know, buying those binges and hiding the food and you were hiding it from yourself. <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> well, might you ask? Yes, I lived on my own and I'd hide that food away. I had a house, it was a very old-fashioned house, and it had very high cupboards, and you sort of had to climb up a ladder to get to them, and I'd put the food up there, and it would start calling to me, and I'd, I'd get it down, and I'd have one, whatever it was, biscuit maybe, anything else, and I'd just have to go back and back and back. Yeah, but the insanity, I mean, we talk about the insanity of the disease and the insanity of hiding food for yourself knows no limits. Absolutely. <laughs> and so yeah. what, what, what was your thinking around your eating, Jill? Did you think that it was, you were just somebody who was hungry all the time, a bit of a pig? I mean, what, what was your rationale? I was very judgmental. Yes, I thought I was a pig. I thought I was bad. I thought I was gluttonous. I didn't think it was normal. I always knew, I always knew there was something wrong with me and I always knew there was something wrong with my eating. And I wasn't somebody who loved food. It was, it was almost like I was at war with food all the time. It was almost like it was my enemy. And I was always trying to fight it or beat it or get the better of me. It wasn't a love affair with food. When I came to the program and people talked about addiction and they talked about the compulsion to eat and the obsession with food, I just knew that that described, I'd never had those words around food, but they absolutely described my relationship with food. I just had to do it. I just couldn't not do it. And I hated it. Was it sort yeah. of connected to any behaviours? Like, would you do it particularly if you were in front of the TV or if you were reading a book? I mean, or did you just eat just randomly? I was very undiscriminating. Right. If I didn't have an excuse, I'd invent one. Right. I mean, there was a time in my life when I was pick a, I would pick a fight with someone so I could go out and eat, but most of the time I'd just... If I needed to justify it, I would, and most of the time I'd just do it. Yeah, yeah, any excuse. And so did it suddenly get worse at the end and made you think, I, I must do something, or did you just get tired of it? How did it sort of culminate? Was there a dark night of the soul? I had been in Alcoholics Anonymous for a couple of years, and I had never heard of, I'd never heard food described as addiction. I'd never heard of programs for people with food addiction. And when I went to Alcoholics Anonymous, I met people who were in a program for food addiction and it just clicked, I knew. So I knew that I was that sort of person 
And that wasn't the end of my eating, but it was certainly the end of me recognising, you know, it was in the beginning of recognising that this was somewhere that I belonged. I mean, I knew I'd always had the food problem all my life, and, yeah, I knew I needed to go there. Oh, thank goodness. Mm. It must have been such a, yeah, enlightening moment to, to see that, like, the alcohol, the food was a yep. substance you could be addicted to. Absolutely, yeah. And that there was a solution. Yes, do you think the fact that you had been in AA and already were familiar with the 12-step fellowship made it easier to be in the food fellowship? It may, Yes, it made it easier to be in the food fellowship, certainly, because I understood the language. It was very similar. It didn't deal with the food itself, but it certainly, I knew a bit about the programme, what it was like, and I still had to come to terms with eating and... We talk about admitting defeat and it took me some time in the programme to realise that my eating was as bad as my drinking had been. Mm. And do you mind if I ask, Jill, did you have other addictions? Is this, was it the alcohol and the food, was, was that it? They were the main thing. I mean, at one stage I used to smoke 90 cigarettes a day, so I guess you could call that addiction. But I also had habits you know, I was just addictive in everything I did and she this sometimes in a meeting. I once made myself a beanie and I thought it was lovely and within two weeks I'd made five of them. I mean it's not just it's <laughs> it's not just substances. Yes. It's behaviours. Yes. yes. And I know I still have that addictive personality and that's why I need the programme. Tell me a bit about the programme, because obviously, you know, it's the solution for the addictive eating, but obviously the behaviours improve as well. So how does that happen? Well, sometimes I say, you know, the programme is just learning to behave like a grown-up and a responsible adult. When I was in the food and the disease, I, I was oblivious to other people. I really was. I didn't care about other people. I wanted to be a nice, caring, warm, loving person. But really, I was so obsessed with myself that I wasn't really aware of other people. And in the program, we go through a process um, of self-examination, of making amends for harm done. And gradually through that process, and also just through sitting through meetings, hearing other people sharing, learning to see the world in a different way, you know, realising that the world doesn't revolve around me and that there are other people in the world. I mean, I remember doing that self-examination in my life with my family and I realised that when I was a kid, my parents were always at fault because they weren't paying all the attention to me. And it never occurred to me they had two other children, they had jobs, they had other family members, they had neighbours... I had no idea that they were having to deal with all those other people. And that probably sounds crazy, and it was. <laughs> so, you know, through working the program and being part of this fellowship, starting to realise that there are other people in the world and starting to behave like a responsible adult. <laughs> and so was, was it difficult to have to look at yourself and see those things about yourself that maybe people don't really want to... Oh, yes. 
admit to themselves. You hated every minute of it. Yeah, who wants to admit that? <laughs> no, thing? exactly. But it was so freeing after I'd done it. You know, I mean, I was so afraid to do it, and I thought everything was everyone else's fault to look at. I was terrified of what people would think of me, particularly the person I shared all this with, after they heard what I was like. And the most freeing thing was to realise that they were the same. I mean, they just laughed at all these things that had been so traumatic for me. And they didn't turn around and hate me for it. It was... That's, and we talk about the freedom of the programme, and that's one of the freedoms of the programme, to realise that you're not this terrible human being, you know, you're just an ordinary person with all the sort of good points and bad points that everyone else has. Get some perspective back yeah. in your life. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yes, only last week I was telling my sponsor I thought I was potentially the world's most self-centred <laughs> person. And she reassured me I was just the same as everyone else. Yeah, exactly. It's very comforting, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Something we have never really explored much is the role of a sponsor. I mean, can you talk a little bit, Jill, about... What is it like to be an adult, because you were in your 30s, am I right, when you came into Mm. the programme, to be an adult and then to be taking advice or direction from another adult? That's not something we normally do in life. Yes, I hated that too. (laughs) (laughs) But after I got over hating it, it almost felt like cheating because life suddenly became so much easier. I'd had this huge focus on being strong and independent and to me that was a virtue and when I look at the human race now I don't think we were meant to be strong and independent I think we were meant to be totally interdependent and to have somebody that I could share my problems with or just share, not just, not just problems, share the pleasures of life, share everything that's going on in life with. Just suddenly life became so much easier and it wasn't so terrible because when things were going round in my head, everything was awful. Every, like he was saying, everything I did was awful and I was the most terrible self-centred person and the most terrible anything under the sun. And suddenly somebody was just making light of all this and just saying, yes, we're all like that. I mean, it was very liberating. So it changed from being a terrible thing to just being such such a blessing, such a wonderful thing to have in my life, mm-hmm. to have someone else. And I'm so grateful for it today, mm. you know, and I still have that same sponsor. And, you know, she knows my history. She has some perspective. I mean, I remember a while ago... You know, ringing her and saying, I can't remember what it was about, but I'm always like this, I haven't changed. And she just said, I haven't heard you say that in five years. <laughs> you know, so that's where you get that that perspective. Mm. Yeah, it was very freeing. What about the steps? Are they still relevant? Good Lord, they came out in the 1940s, <laughs> for goodness sake. We're, you know, a long way yeah. from that. yeah. And it totally, and this sort of harks back to what I was saying before, that I think even the person who who first wrote the steps would probably admit there's nothing terribly original in them. They are what, how a lot of people live their lives. I mean, I meet a lot of people out there in the world who would know nothing about our programme. 
but they live fairly similar lives. They have a high power in their lives. They're not trying to run themselves, run life themselves. They look at their side of things and take responsibility where they need to and make amends and have lives devoted to trying to help other people. And really, that's sort of the programme in a nutshell. So as a way of life... It's wonderful. It gives me a lot of peace of mind that I never had before. It's yeah. fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. That for other people, that right living is intuitive, but for exactly. us, we, we need it to come from outside of ourselves. <laughs> you have to learn it. We do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and need that reinforcement all the time, yes. too. Yes. You know? Yes, because it's not mm. like you hear it once or, or do it once and that's it, you know, then mm. it, it does mm. require mm. that repetition. Yeah, yeah. But that's not a, a terrible thing. It's, no. It's quite a joy. Yeah, but I, I, I'm I, quite sure. I mean, I go to several meetings a week, and I'm sure that if I wasn't going to meetings regularly, I don't know how long it would be before I was into the food. But I know that I would be that angry, self-centred, victim-blaming type of person quick as a flash. It wouldn't take long until everything was wrong with the world. And I just need that, that constant repetition. Yeah. And so from the early years when you had that painful and intense self-focus, would you say that's gone now, Jill? Or? Oh, it's not completely, no. I don't know if it'll ever be gone <laughs> completely, possibly when I die. But it doesn't run my life. And... I see it today, I can, most of the time I can see it. I can look at my own behaviour and my own thinking and laugh at it a bit. It doesn't grip me, it, yeah, it doesn't have me in a vice and turn me into this bundle of misery. <laughs> and how wonderful it is to see people come into the fellowship yes. and, and you know, yes. make that transition. I know. Yeah. Obviously carrying the message is, a, is an important part yeah. of it. Our fellowship. Totally, yeah. Mm. I mean, that's our lifeblood really, isn't it, mm. you know? I mean, we say you can't keep it if you don't give it away, and mm. it's it's so true. And it's such a joy, as you said, when people come in, or even new people, you know, if they phone, you're talking to them, and you get taken back to what it was like. Mm. I get taken back to what it was like when I first came in and remember that and... Mm gives me that gratitude for how things have changed. Absolutely, that yeah. was exactly the word I was thinking, yeah. that, that gratitude. Yes. yes. And I suppose you, you touched on higher power, because I know that when you came in you were a fairly staunch atheist, Jill. Totally. And yeah. Yes, and yeah. obviously in yeah. order to get well you yeah. had to give up that position. Yeah. Where are you with that? Well, when I came in, I, I remember seeing the word God on the wall. And I was absolutely horrified, and I thought, what a shame. This looks so promising, but it's not for me. <laughs> and I was given the choice. You'll either get this idea of a higher power or God, or you'll go insane and die. And I have been to quite a number of funerals of people in this program, and I know there's truth in that. But also... When I was finally became free of the food, as we call it, I went from one day not being able to not think about food to the next day that 
that that desire to eat, that obsession had completely gone and that was nothing of my doing. And I find myself today behaving in ways, being kind to people. (laughs) This used to be very alien to me. (laughs) Being a courteous, considerate person and I know that that's not the person I was. So to me, that is God doing for me what I cannot do for myself. I don't think I really understand God well, but I do understand what it means to be living God's way of life. And I know that there is some power that I don't understand helping me to be the sort of person I am today because I wasn't like that and it's none of my doing. It was just given to me, you know. I think of recovery as a gift because... I didn't earn it. It wasn't a result of good behaviour. <laughs> it was just given to me. And, you know, my life is so different today. And I know I, I, I don't take any credit whatsoever for that. But I have gratitude for it. That's lovely. Thank you so mm. much, Jill. And thank you very much for the gift of your story. I've so enjoyed oh, it. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Louise. Thank Quite you. Right.